Well, how we doing 11 a.m.? Feel awake? You feel ready for this? It's great. Uh, my name is Dave. Actually, uh, Michael calls me David, and the only other people who do that is my family. So you're all family now, so you can call me David. We're getting very proper here at Rocky Peak with proper names, <laughs> but it's great to be with you. Um, as, we, uh, as we jump in today, uh, you'll notice at the top of the outline, the title of the message, It's Better Together, uh, because we were never intended to do life alone. Now, this is a message that I started learning, um, especially when I was going through the police academy when I was 21. Went through the LAPD Academy, and um, there was a certain day we had gone to Burbank Studios, and we were working on tactical training. So we were supposed to apply the training that we had learned um, in active scenarios that they were setting up for us. This one scenario, myself, a partner, got in a car, and we had to go to this one back lot where they had the large building facades. And so we turned the corner. The minute we turned the corner, we hear incoming fire. Bam, bam, bam. There's a sniper. We were being ambushed. There's a sniper on this little chapel that they had set up over there. And so we are trained. You got to get cover or concealment. So I jumped into a place of cover, calling for backup. We're nailing the scenario, doing what we're supposed to be doing, what we were trained to do. And the next thing that I hear is a gun, the cocking of a gun right behind my head and my partners. They had set us up where we were ambushed during an ambush. You know what they're trying to teach? That we have got to look out for each other. We can't see everything. We need other people around. Especially, that's great for uh, Americans. We've grown up, like our hero movies are usually lone heroes, right? The Lone Ranger, way back in the day. But even current, if you watch the, uh, uh, the Bourne movies, One Man Taking on the World, or Tom Cruise Taking on the World, or any of the Marvel superheroes, usually one person is going to go out and tackle it. They want to get that out of you in the academy, because we are never intended to make it alone. This applies to what we're talking about today. It applies to the first followers. If you're new with us, I want to catch you up to speed. We're in a series. It's called Scent, Piercing the Darkness. It's a fourth mini-series on a larger series that we've been on, and it's in the book of Acts. I love this book. If you've never read it, I encourage you, read it. Sit down, start going through it. Um, It is, in many ways, fast-paced. The stories are exciting. It's awesome. It's powerful. What it's doing, it's taking you from the time that Jesus had died and he he was on the earth for 40 days, appeared to hundreds of people, and then he ascends into heaven. And the book of Acts picks it up right where Luke leaves off. And you see a disbanded group of followers in Jerusalem, all of a sudden bonding together, and then they take Jerusalem by storm. Then they start taking over the Roman Empire for the next 30 years, this movement of Jesus goes city to city, and it explodes. And that's the book of Acts. It's very powerful. Well, today, as we jump into it, um, we are, uh, we're going to be doing something. We're not going to be taking the next chunk of Scripture in the book of Acts. We're going to be pausing and marinating on things we've looked at before, um, just like a good steak, right? So we're going to pause. We're going to soak that in. Because what we're looking for is a, a couple things. A couple things. We want to see what was their secret sauce. You ever have a good burger or something? There's a great sauce on it. You're like, what is that secret sauce? What was behind their driving passion for Jesus? What was part of the reason that they were so committed to each other? What, what did life look like back then? So our mission is the same as their mission, right? Our strategies should be very similar to their strategies. So we're going to unpack their strategies and glean from that today. 
So in your outline, you'll notice a section that says, Piercing the Darkness, the Strategy. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2, go to verse 46, and we're going to see this strategy beginning to get unpacked. Acts 2, verse 46. As you turn there, you're going to notice their strategy revolved around how they got together. They'd get together in big groups, big meetings. They'd also get together in smaller huddles. Let's see how it describes it in Acts 2.46. It said, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Well, where is that? If, if, you, uh, if you recall how we've talked about the temple, uh, this was a very public location. It was a place where the temple was, and this huge courtyard would be out where the apostles would often teach. Large groups would gather So you have a large group teaching experience, large group worship experience together. So they'd meet for these large group gatherings, but they also met in smaller groups. Verse 46 goes on. They broke bread in their homes. So where are they gathering? Oh, they're also going to their houses. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So do you get a small glimpse of what these gatherings look like? They're getting together their fellowship, there's worship. They did it old school style. No iPods, no Bluetooth speakers, just them and acapella, off we go. Maybe they had instruments going for it. But if you would walk down the streets of Jerusalem, you, would off, you could see them gathering at the temple. You'd hear as you walk by houses, people gathering, worshiping Jesus. And this was part of their culture. This is how, part of their strategy. They would huddle together in both ways, big group, small group. That's what they did. What's the advantage of a larger group gathering? Well, you can do corporate teaching like this. You can talk to more people at one time. You could hear the apostles when they'd gathered and teach. But there's something unique when you get together corporately like this. A shared worship experience can be powerful. You can teach more broadly to a lot of people. But there's also something very powerful when you get together in a smaller group that you can't do here. You can't build relationships sitting here. You, uh, you can't really interact with a message or talk about what you're learning or share your life. That just doesn't happen here. There's certain aspects of ministry that you cannot do in a setting like this. So both of them became a very central thing. Acts chapter 5, verse 42, says it like this. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So again, another example. They're doing both of these. What I want you to catch is there is a shift that is taking place on how, uh, what the focus of worship was. All through the Old Testament, you'll find that worship centered around the temple. They'd go to the temple, make sacrifices at the temple. The temple was the location. Even when they wandered in the desert for 40 years, they built a portable temple. It's called the tabernacle. And they'd set this up. It would have a holy of holies place. Nobody can go in there. Thick curtain separated it. The presence of God literally would come and be in that place. The temple was the focus. You're coming to a point in history that post-Jesus, something radical happened. The focus of worship shifted away from the temple. When Jesus died, some radical things happened. The sun went dark. The earth shook. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies rent in two. Why? Because no longer does the presence of God dwell at a location. It dwells with his people. The people are now the temple. 
There's a verse that says that. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You can look at that. I'll read it to you as well. It says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. Look at this temple. Wow, amazing, right? Um, Look around. You're the temple. You're a Christ follower. You're the temple. Second Peter broadens it even. Talks about us individually being the temple, but it says together we're like uh, uh, the Lord is building something. The church united is where it's at. It says you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. So instead they used to go to the temple and make these sacrifices. Now we are like the priests. We get to go directly to God because the presence of God is with his people. So whenever we meet, we meet with God. We don't go to a location. So you see this radical shift taking place in this time of history. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at these smaller gatherings when they huddled up together in smaller groups. Um, It's a perfect time for us as a church to do it. We are going into life group season. Now, I want to just say this. As we talk about this today, the reason we gather in big groups and then go into small groups, it is not some church growth strategy. It is not the next gimmick. We are trying to model the strategy of the first followers. We want to do what they did. We want to live as they lived. And so the smaller huddles that we do together, we want them to have the same essentials that their huddles had together. So we're going to look at four of them today. So if you're in your outline, you'll notice it says, better together, four essentials. I'm going to give you the first one right now. The first one is Christ. This is the first essential, Christ. Now that may not sound earth-shattering right now, but as we unpack this, um, I want this to start sinking in. You're going to see how powerful this will be. I want to take you back to when um, I was in my first real life group that I did. It was in college and Um, if you looked around that room, you'd see people of all different backgrounds, all different interests. This one guy, he's like the typical accounting guy, uh, very conservative Baptist church. Like you just look, he's like, has that image. Loved him. He's so much fun. There was another guy, uh, another great friend of mine, um, black Pentecostal life of the party. He just, he just made everything amazing. And he's the one that I probably was closest to in this group. There's another guy, real introverted surfer, loved the beach, hanging out there. But as you looked at this, there is nothing that really drew us together naturally. We, did, we all had different interests in life. We were pursuing different kinds of things. Um, we had totally different personalities. But as we got together in this group, we all had one passion above all other passions, one desire that outmarked every other desire, and it was Jesus. We wanted to pursue him and know him in a deeper way. And because of that, we were together in ways I didn't know we could be together. It made it powerful. Why do I share that? Because in our life groups, the first essential that we need to carry into a life group is that Christ himself is our reason for gathering. He is our focus. You're going to get to know people. You're going to be able to have some great meals, some great memories. Those are all powerful. We'll see how powerful that is. But don't go to the lower shelf desires for what you're going to get from a group, a life group like that. Our reason for gathering is him. That's it. 
seeking God, to know Jesus, and to make him known. We, it's all about him. Now, you see how this plays out in the book of Acts. So I want to take you in your outline. Acts 1.1 is listed there. Part of the reason, it gives you a sense of what was the focus of Dr. Luke as he wrote. It says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. What was his former book? The book of Luke. What did he talk about, about in Luke? Well, he talked about Jesus, all that he didn't taught. What's the book of Acts about? It's about Jesus, about what he's continuing to do, how he's continuing to move and change lives. So Luke and Acts are really about what? Jesus. One thing you'll notice in Acts 4.32, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. What united them heart and mind? Their one passion, which is to pursue Jesus. That drew them together in a powerful way. Acts 2.42 also says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember how the apostles would go out teaching on the temple courts, teaching even in their homes, going all to, to all these different places. Well, what was their message? We have several of their sermons in the book of Acts. You see what they talked about, and it's about Jesus. He was real. He fulfilled Old Testament promise. He walked this earth. He was crucified for our sins. He resurrected physically. He appeared to us. He's changed our life. He's changing others' lives. He's still moving in power. Look, these people have been touched by God. So their message was Jesus. So when they gather in these homes and talking, they're still telling stories about, hey, Jesus touched and changed my life. Those are the conversations you would hear. When they would gather and pray, they'd pray to Jesus. They would be worshiping Jesus. They'll be telling his stories, talking about the teachings about Jesus. So one thing was clear, Jesus is the reason. He is the main essential for gathering. It is, is, it is the reason why. We call our groups life groups. You want to know what the life in a life group is? It is him. It is Jesus. Jesus is the life. That's why we gather. He promised he would be. One of the other gospels, the gospel of Matthew, tells us something that Jesus said right before he ascended. One thing Jesus declared was a promise that has put steel in the bones of believers for 2,000 years. He said this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He declares a promise Literally before he lifts physically off the earth. But he's saying, I may be physically going, but I'm very much here. Matthew 18 talks about that same idea. Jesus declared this. He said, for where two or three gather, and here's the condition of the promise, in my name, there I am with them. The context of that verse Believers were getting consensus on a matter of church discipline. But the basis for how they got consensus is that the real presence of Jesus was there guiding them because they gathered in his name. When we gather as a life group, we gather in his name for his purpose, to seek him. That's why Christ is the essential. It is in his name that you gather. 
And when you do, I like how the Pillar New Testament commentary puts it, like the divine presence of Jesus himself is there. This does not undercut the idea that when we accept Christ, and as we've seen in the book of Acts, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God himself. It's not discounting that that's not real part of us. All it is saying is when believers come together under the idea of pursuing God, there's something powerful and even and very special about that time that he will manifest, make himself known. That should be encouraging to all of us, right? It's radical. The very Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee, who walked the streets of Jerusalem, who lived and then ascended, is saying in a real way, when you gather in your homes, your living room, Jesus will be there. Is that a radical thought? Bible says Jesus is the one who created everything, created the heavens, the earth. So that is so far beyond us. That's why we call him. He is the God transcendent. He's beyond us. He's God transcendent, but he's also the God imminent. He's the God most high, but he's also the God most nigh. He's the God above us, but he's also the God among us. It is radical. And there's a very real sense that he shows up when we meet. Well, how does that play out in a life group? Well, oftentimes you just see it. Sometimes you experience it in worship. Sometimes you experience it through what you're hearing from somebody else and being encouraged. Sometimes you see it through answered prayer. We see that in the book of Acts. Acts 4 says, I'll just summarize this one. It's verses 29 and 30, but they basically are asking God, they say, empower us that we may be bold to share you. And would you move in power? Well, then it goes on. The next verse, it says that place is shaken. They are filled with power. And then they go and they're boldly proclaiming the truth. God answers that prayer immediately. Uh, Turn to Acts 13 too. Here's a simple way that God showed up, how Jesus directed it. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I've called them. So in a time where they're seeking God, God came in a real way and directed them. It's powerful. You ever seen God move and answer prayer? I remember inviting a cousin of mine, not a believer, um, to a college age life group, and I was leading it, and uh, she happened to be in town visiting. I said, you know, on this night, you know, people come to the house, and we worship. Uh, We're going to talk about scripture, and If you want, you're welcome to come sit in. You don't have to participate if you don't want to, but I just want to throw it out there in case you want to come and be a part of it. You're here anyway. She goes, I would love to come and just see what that is. So she comes to the life group. Everyone's doing what we do in life group. Uh, Connecting, we worship, talking about scripture. Partway through this, she is so blown away by what she's experiencing. She's experiencing that there's something real in this place. God's among these people. And she just says, I, I have to be here. I need to move here. I, I got to be with you. She wanted to come so bad. So, well, and one of the people in the group said, well, what would it take for you to come? Well, she said, I would have to have one, a place to live. Um, I would need a job. And I need to get admitted into Cal State Northridge, <laughs> which is kind of a problem because we're past, past admission time. And someone said, we're going to pray for that. Okay, so that, boom, this group starts praying. Lord, we're going to ask that you would make a way for her. 
and they start praying for her. And uh, life group ends, psh, all, everyone's on their phones working this thing out. Well, within the hour, I'm telling you, within the hour, she had a place to live. Within the hour, she had a job. And within the hour, how this one ever happens, somebody knew the uh, head of admissions for Cal State Northridge, after hours, talks to them, who agrees that if she can pass this stuff, she will be admitted into CSUN. How does that happen? Right? You ever tried to go through a university and do anything out of, you know, it's it's like DMV times 10. It's awful. So what was that? That's God. He's very real. There is power in your life group. His name is Jesus. Right? Okay, number two. Connection. Connection. Everybody wants to be a part of something. Everybody wants to feel like they belong, right? Um, How many of you uh, hated middle school? Just curious. Raise your hand. Oh, it's just awful time. Okay. It's always funny. You'll find a lot of people like that. Hands go up rapidly, quickly. Why? Because there's something at 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, people learn the amazing art of tearing others down to build themselves up. And they're very good at it. Um, I love those middle school years. Maybe I perfected that art too much. I don't know. (laughs) The real reason, I had such great friends. To this day, I still know a lot of those people. A lot of times people look back and the quality of their connection is really what makes or breaks that time of life, whether it's school or another season, because we're made to connect. We're designed for it. In fact, it's so powerful, it affects our behavior. You notice that we begin to take on the behavior of the people we're with. We'll start talking like them, acting like them. That can be very good or very bad, right? But it's powerful. In fact, there's a normal progression on how people um, really connect and grow, especially in the family of God. Progression really is designed. God's a relational God. We're relational people. People first belong, then often, generally, they first belong, believe, then they behave. Religion is a different focus than relationship. Religion will focus on behavior first and demand that before there can be belonging or belief. I just think of my cousin. She felt welcomed first before she, anything else was taking place in her life. The first followers nailed this. Acts chapter 2 talks about it. It says they devoted themselves, now look what they did, to fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer. That's just a little glimpse of what happened in these homes. They'd hang out together. They'd fellowship. They would pray together. They would do those things together. Eat, hang out, connect. Verse 46 goes on. It says they broke bread in their homes, which is something powerful in a setting, a casual setting, how you connect. They ate together. Now look at the next phrase. With glad and sincere hearts. I want to pause and reflect on the tone and quality of these groups. What was the tone? Well, they were glad. You know, in our life groups, they should not be heavy, overly serious, sulky, or depressing. Sound good? Anybody want to go to a group like that? You shouldn't. They were not the tone of, our fir- of the first followers. They weren't. There's too much to be celebrating. There's too much hope in Jesus for that. That's the tone. What's the quality of the group? Well, it was sincere hearts. Well, what does that mean? Well, when an environment lacks sincerity, 
It's tense. These environments were not tense. Why? Because there was no pretense. There's no walls built up. Um, they were able to be real. They could share their life. They could share their heart. They can share their stories. They got real with each other. What does that mean to have connection? It means we have to have some vulnerability. Brene Brown has three PhDs in social sciences. She did one of the most popular TED Talks that are around on the power of vulnerability. As she taught on that, um, she shares that she did a six-year study around the world. The first thing she looked at in her study was this. What is the core need of humanity? What is the common need? And she finds out that everybody is bio-neurologically wired for connection. Everybody is wired to belong. That's the main thing. To feel that they belong somewhere. Even people who um, don't have great people around necessarily to connect with, that's why oftentimes you'll hear youth in broken homes Uh, Parents are out working, and it's so much easier to get connected into a gang. Why? Because even bad connection is better than no connection. It's too painful. So we're wired to connect. There's another medical study on this. UCLA did it. And they realized that there's an overlap. Um, They did a study on relational neurobiology, and they they realized that um, the overlap is between physical pain and social pain. They had everybody get together, these test groups. They gradually start excluding people from a multiplayer game. And as they monitor their brain, they realize the area that lights up in, with pain is the exact same area where there's physical pain. They are experiencing pain from being excluded. We are wired to connect, hardwired. And it takes authenticity. Well, how do you define authenticity? Brene Brown said it like this. I like it. It's in your outline. It says, authenticity is the ability to let go of who you think you should be to be who you really are. She also said, what makes you vulnerable makes you beautiful. You ever notice that? In the life group that I shared, that I, the first one I was in, I could go around that room, look at that group of people around that room, and gradually people began sharing pieces of their life, opening up, one struggling in school, one struggling with lust, one struggling with fear, getting these nightmares, could go on. What happened when people shared things like that? You know what we did? We actually felt more drawn to each other. We were drawn together. He said, you know, we're going to stand with you in it. Um, I don't necessarily know what to do, but we're going to stand with you, and we're going to go to Jesus. We know he knows what to do with it, so we're going to pray. And we just did that with each other. And we walked with each other until we began seeing God move and change lives. And it's powerful. The, uh, The first followers had this in a very real way, and there was a result from it. In verse 47, it says this, It says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You create a truly accepting environment. That's attractive. People want to be a part of of that. 
That's what we want to create within our life groups. People flock to it. They feel welcomed. Even people who don't know the Lord yet. And you'll find something. After they get a sense of belonging, often people believe. And then you'll see their behavior begin to change. It's powerful and it's beautiful. There is a common misconception. I'm sure you've all heard it. Have you ever seen people that said, well, uh, listen, uh, all this connecting thing, not my thing because my faith is private. You ever hear that? Um, they're, they're misguided. What they mean to say is their faith is personal. Yours should be personal. Mine should be personal. I can't believe for you. You can't believe for me. I mean, it's a personal faith, but what it never is is private. It was never intended to be. There's no model for it in Scripture. Our faith is meant to be connected to other people. We're designed for it. And we're at, without it, we're going to be struggling. The only way to be all that God wants you to be is to have other people in your life. But in order to have it, it requires a place of safety. That's why the third essential is going to be key. It's this. Commitment. Commitment. That is not a fun one to write down, is it? That's like an omen word in our culture. Ooh, I don't want to write that down. I don't like that word. Um, Acts 2.42, I want to show you how this plays out for them. And I think you will be drawn to this as we talk about it. It says, they, what's the next word? Devoted themselves. Wow, that sounds pretty serious. What did they devote themselves to? Well, we've seen in that verse to the apostles' teaching. They devoted to fellowship. They devoted to praying for and with each other. That's what they were devoted and committed to. That's what they did. Verse 46 says, every day they continued to meet together. In fact, their connection was so strong, it just became part of their life. They wanted to regularly connect because they were committed to each other. Our life groups that are launching this week, they do something. They, uh, they ask, leaders ask for a commitment in the life group. They ask, well, you, we want you to commit to covenant, to be with us for 10 weeks. So it's only 10 weeks. Um, people often move around after those 10 weeks, so it's just kind of a short thing. You can come in 10 weeks, and you can move on, do something different after that. But the reason we say we want you to commit, because we want to unify around a common cause, to pursue God, to seek Jesus first. We're committing to be there with each other. We're committing that... Um, if we want to pursue God, whatever we're reading, our focus of study is, or the homework, or anything else, we will focus on that before we come, because we're committed to this. We're, we're in this thing together, a common cause, and we're committed to our common people. That's part of the commitment, and it does something. When you commit to something and commit around a cause, it pulls you together, it unifies you, and it makes you a united front moving forward, and we're made for it. We know we're made for it when we, we see certain things. We are drawn to pictures of unity. We're drawn to, to that. This is 9-11. 15 years ago, uh, an attack happens that devastates our nation. And, uh, you know, if you serve anywhere, thank you for it, whether it's military, law enforcement, medical. We do honor and appreciate you. And... But what I want to take a moment, and I want you to go back in your mind. Think back to that moment when on the steps of the Capitol, Republicans, Democrats, standing together united 
addressing the nation against a common enemy, common cause. And do you remember what that did to the nation? It kind of brought people together in that moment. It's just like now in this election with Trump and Hillary. Okay, maybe not. (laughs) I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. (laughs) But isn't it true, though? We're drawn to pictures of unity. That's why people are drawn to epic movies that have these types of themes. This is why things like The Lord of the Rings was so popular. Why? Because you see a a different group of people bonding together for a common cause. They're going to save the people of Middle Earth. And they are willing to sacrifice themselves to this group of people for a cause. They'll put others before themselves. That's why Aragon will risk his life, or Sam Wise Gamgee will stand by Frodo, and we are moved emotionally by that. Why? Because we are drawn to connect and commit past ourselves. And Jesus himself modeled the commitment ultimately committed so much he would lay his life down for us. We are designed for it, and we need it. You know, commitment is the difference maker. Listen to this quote, how it describes the difference between a committed heart and a non-committed heart. It's in your outline. It says this, when confronted with a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. Wow. So if you're committed, what are you committed to do? We will search for a solution. On the contrary, the undecided heart searches for an escape. Our culture is marked by two big things, a consumer culture and a cohabitation culture. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. You know, everywhere we go, we're there to get. We're there to take something. It's like even the words of someone like JFK years ago when he said, ask not what you can do, for your country, but ask what your... Did I mess that up? <laughs> see, it's so ingrained. Do you see what I'm saying? I just made my own point right there. <laughs> ask not what your country can do for you. You ask what you can do for your country. That's like a foreign thought to most people, right? Because there's something that we are so conditioned that it's all about what we can get out of something. That is not a biblical mindset. In fact, as you, as you look at this, um, it, it plays over into a cohabitation culture. This is what the cohabitation culture will say. Well, I'm with you as long as you've got something to give. You ever see people who've been married, or not married, but they've been living together for a long time. I was just talking to one this past week, um, have kids and everything. But uh, if you ever ask someone, says, well, why don't you get married? And they're like, married? <laughs> It's just a piece of paper. Well, if it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why they won't sign it. Because cohabiting isn't marriage, and it isn't commitment, and it isn't committed. Because if you're just cohabiting, it means when you stop getting, you can get out. In fact, there's a manipulation that's inside of it. The threat of leaving People with a cohabitation mindset instead of a committed mindset will make a threat of pulling out. Why do they do that? To get what they want because it's all about them. Commitment is about others beyond it. We are designed for commitment. We're made for it. There's a drawback on a cohabitation mindset. 
it limits your intimacy. It limits how much you can connect. It breeds loneliness because you can only go so far. And it, it's, a, it's a curse that we walk under. I know some people say, well, listen, you're talking about this thing. I don't want to commit to I've been burned at a church. Well, look around. Probably everybody's been burned at church. Have you ever been burned at work? You still go to work? You ever been burned shopping? Still go shopping? <laughs> right? It's a great line. Um, the idea is that we have got to be committed past our hurt. We have to be. And the first followers were, they were committed through hurt and frustration. And you know what the result was? They turned cities upside down. And they lived more free than they ever imagined. That was the third essential. You ready for one more? Last one is care. Care. You know, there was no other time in history, the history of the church, that care really uh, was on the movement of Jesus. The first three centuries were unbelievable. You see a picture of it in Acts 2.44. It says, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Well, what are we getting in our mindset? Imagine this. You've got some property, all this, but you realize you've got a friend or somebody that you know, and they just have a need. They're willing to sell something off just to help their brother or sister out. They're willing to make a personal sacrifice to help somebody out. Radical thought. Convicting thought. There was a result of this. It said, because of that, everybody in their community, no one had a need. Who organized that? Nobody. That was individual Christ followers just looking around, meeting a need that they could meet on their own. Nobody organizes that. It's just a mindset that was there. The Roman society stood up and they took notice of this. Tertullian, a first century writer, um, or second century writer, he said this. He said, Romans would walk by and exclaim, look how they love each other. Like it was so out of their mind, they could not even grasp this, how they took care of each other. Another early writer, Clement of Alexandria, he described Christ followers like this. He said, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. If he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he doesn't complain. Wow. That's just a mindset. I want to help care. I'll meet a need. In that society, there were no orphanages. People would often abandon babies on the streets of Rome. And uh, guess who would go pick them up and care for them? Christ followers. You know that throughout history, you'll notice that major acts of compassion that have affected society as a whole are from Christ followers, whether it's a hospital and orphanages, universities, that's all Christ followers doing that. It's marked history. Roman soldiers would come back from battle, wounded. They couldn't care for enough of them. So who stepped up to care for them? Christ followers, they would bandage their wounds. They would sit with them. 
Do you know that these soldiers are the very same soldiers that tortured and persecuted believers? Now who's caring for them? Christ followers. Now do you see why that city's getting turned upside down for this mess? They cannot even, this is outside their grid. And it's changing lives. Care marked the first followers. It's got to mark us in our life groups. It's got to mark us on how we do it. It has to mark our mindset. I have seen our church in amazing ways come together. Our life groups have done powerful things. Well, what have we seen? I've been to hospitals where you see a hospital room filled up with people praying for someone in their group. The waiting room taken over. Meals being scheduled and sent to the families, just being cared for. It's powerful. You know, we don't get, it's not like pastors can make visits to everybody, but we can have our communities make visits. Usually if a pastor shows up, it's really bad. So hopefully you don't see me or another (laughs) walking through. Funerals. I Just being there when there's a loss and how a life group will come around and support the family has been powerful. I've seen it here. I've seen it when people move. They gather together. They help each other move. They fix the house up. There was one life group that knew of a couple, not even in their life group, but they just had a need. This, they just had a need to have a car. And so this one couple in the group says, well, we've got a car. We'll give them the car. There's just a problem. It doesn't run right now, but it is a good car. But one guy goes, well, I'm the mechanic. I'll fix the car, uh, but it's going to need these parts. And so the life group pools money together. The whole life group buys what's needed to fix this car. The car gets fixed. They give it to this couple, and guess whose life group that, or that couple joined? They had a community already. Care marks who we are. But care comes with a mindset. The mindset is this, I will contribute. I'll bring something to the table. This is the mindset in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. It says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you, referencing all of you, when you all gather together, When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church can be built up. The goal when you get together is to build each other up. This is chapter 14 of this book. It's right after chapter 13, which describes love. The whole idea is we love each other well. We come together. We build each other up. It means when you go to a life group, that if you've been encouraged by something that week, be ready. God will probably use it to encourage somebody else. Um, God will use you to pray for somebody else. Even when you have a need, you'll look past your need just to care for somebody else. There's a mindset that you're going to contribute. You don't even need to know a lot to do that. You could have walked with God for a day. But you know, this past week, this was encouraging, and God may use that to encourage someone who walked with God for 20 years. This is not about how much you know It's just being open and willing to be used by God. There's an idea that what if Jesus were actually in your life group? Well, we learned he is. You may not see his flesh and blood, but he shows up in your hands, your feet, through your words. If you would just think, what would Jesus say in this moment? What would Jesus pray in this moment? And then you do what he would do. That's what a life group looks like. That means this is not just about a leader leading a group. No, this is the body of Christ coming together all to contribute. We need you to contribute. 
you have something to offer. God's within you. And we do it because we care. You ever failed? Well, a life group would just say, listen, you confess that, yeah. Have you taken steps to correct it? Yes. You need to know something. We stand with you. We'll walk with you. We'll encourage you in this. Your sin doesn't define you. Jesus defines you. And we're committed to you. That's what a group cares, how they care for each other. Someone's like, I'm struggling. I'm stressed out. I'm freaking out. Hey, we will walk with you as you freak out. And there's a place where you can rest amidst this craziness. You'll get texts from us. We're going to pray for you right now. We're going to remind you that, that God himself is a stronghold. We're going to ask that you experience the safety of his presence right now. We'll pray. And then watch what God does. That's a group that prays for each other. That's what a life group is. We care for each other. We care for people around. That's why a lot of life groups even will jump into the Serve project or other projects. Justin Martyr said this, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people. We pray for our enemies. In the third century, a devastating plague rocked the ancient world. Family members were throwing other family members into the street so they wouldn't get infected. They were isolating them and casting them out just to save their own life. But when you looked out the window, you would see Christ followers coming along, picking them up, and caring for them themselves at the risk of contacting the disease themselves. That's who we were, and that's who we are. That's what we're designed for. Jesus said, everyone will know that they're my disciples if you love one another. This has to mark our life groups. And we wonder, why did the faith, the movement of Jesus spread throughout the first century so fast, right? Doesn't that give you some street cred, that level of care? What are the four essentials we need in our groups? Christ, he is it. He's why we gather, right? There's no other purpose higher than that. Connection, we're wired for it. Commitment, it undergirds safety, and it means we're all in this together with a common goal to a common people and care. That's our mindset. We're here to even contribute. We're all in this together. Sound good? So good. One question is just, are you ready? Um, and as we close, I'm going to make a quick nod to three groups of people. The first one is life group leaders. I want to just say something to you. I know a lot of people who lead life groups get intimidated. Um, you feel like you don't know enough Bible. You may have people in your group who are, you feel are much more qualified than you to lead you're not a great counselor. You don't need to be. In this life group, just know this. God himself will be there to lead. He'll empower you. You get to trust him. He's done this for centuries. He knows what he's doing. He will, he will lead you. He'll guide you. It's about him. It's not about you. And God will use you. So I just want you to go in faith with that. Trust the Lord with it. Um, if you're a member of a group, a life group. You're going to come and be a part of one. I want you to just come with expectancy. Expect God to show up and do something. And come with a mindset that you're willing to contribute as well. And the last group, if you're not a part of something already, I just want you to think through this. If Jesus is real and he loves to show up when we gather, wouldn't you love to see that? Wouldn't you love to connect in a deeper way be with the people who are really committed to you and your success? And to care for you and others, 
Like, that sounds attractive. What in the world would keep you away from something like that? In Brene Brown's study, she did five years studying the biggest thing that keeps people from connecting. She identified it as shame. Around the world, it's shame of some sort. And through her study, catch this, she realized that there's a people where the shame issue is handled. It's Christ followers. It's Christians. It's believers. Because when Jesus came, he declared that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he paid for it. She's so moved by it that she herself made a profession of faith in Christ. Isn't that powerful? So I just want to encourage you. uh, This idea of shame uh, is different than conviction. Conviction says you did something wrong. Shame says you are something wrong. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. You may be convicted to confess something, but it doesn't define you. He defines you, and you're free. Let's pray. In fact, I'm going to invite you to stand up as we do this, as we close out. All right. In fact, what I'm going to invite you to do first is we're just going to respond to the Lord. We're going to pray, um, pray something very simple together. And uh, we're just gonna we're gonna start by thanking the Lord. We'll thank Jesus Himself. So, I invite you close your eyes. If you feel comfortable, just put your hand on your heart as a way of saying you're praying from your heart to the Lord. And I want you to say this out loud. Say, Jesus, you paid the price. You've taken my shame. You've taken condemnation. You give love. You still pursue. I receive that, and I pursue you. There, you can put your hand down. If you've never given your life to Christ, that was the prayer of your heart you just prayed. just want to let you know something. When you commit your life to Christ, you're saying he's the king, that you're going to follow a new leader in your life. You don't have anything to bring. You just have sin, brokenness. That's why he died and he rose. And so you're asking for him to forgive you, cleanse you from all of that, that you could be part of this people. So just want to pray. If you, if that's you, you're just not even sure if you've ever really done that, you can be sure right now. Pray along silently as I pray. You're just going to say, Jesus, I want the gift that you've offered. I recognize your God in the flesh. You came and lived among us. You died and rose that I might have freedom in you. You're the king of the universe. And I today just make you king in my life. I surrender and I confess all of that. Renew me, refresh me. I want to be part of a family like this. If you prayed that, if you felt it, that's awesome. Sometimes people feel something powerful when they pray. If you didn't, it doesn't mean anything's wrong. You're making a a decision of your heart. You'll experience the Lord in unique ways with your journey with God. But just know you're in. One thing Jesus said for us to do as believers is to remember him in a very unique way. He said on the last night he was here, he broke bread, he took a cup, and he said, this is how I want you to remember me. I'm so committed to you that I would die for you, and I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He says, do this as believers when you gather together, and remember Jesus. So I invite you to do that today. You're a Christ follower, whether today's your first day or you've known him for years, We're going to invite you to the tables. Just make sure, lay down your fears, lay down your sin.
um, lay down your grudges and come to the table clean and let the Lord refresh you anew as you remember his committed love to you. So as we take this communion, Lord, we want to commune with you. We want to be with you. We want to walk with you. Would you meet your people in a powerful way right now as we worship? Amen. You're just... That good? He's with us. And uh, as, the, as we kick off life groups this week, he will be with you. Very real way. I'm excited about that. I will be jumping into a life group on Wednesday night. I'm excited about mine. I know there's a lot of them happening out there. So uh, we are just going to pray for that right now. Um, let's just ask that God, what he's doing here in the service would continue on this week as we connect, as we meet. And so we'll do something very specific right now. I'm curious if you are a life group leader, a coordinator, an apprentice, raise your hand nice and high. want to see who you guys are. Okay, keep it up there. Okay, a lot of people in here. Um, okay, if you're around one of those people, you know them, you feel comfortable, you can put your hand on their shoulder or you can extend a hand. We're going to pray for them as God would just really set them apart to lead well. So Lord, as a church right now, we come and we do ask that these leaders would experience the leading of your presence, that Jesus, they would have your heart, uh, that they would have a heart to hear your voice, they'd have a heart to obey your word, that they would have a confidence that you will lead them, you'll be with them. I ask you, Lord, that they would learn to, in a sense, host you, host your presence in a great way, in a simple way. They have a heart for the people they lead. So we speak against all fear. Would you release gifts on their life? And uh, may those who come to these groups experience you in a very real and deeper way. And we all ask it in Jesus' name. We said, amen. Good. Good to be with you guys. You know, Michael will be back next week and uh, invite you to, I encourage you to bring your friends out and it'll be a great weekend. And uh, feel free to stop by the patio out front, check out Life Groups if you're not in one, and we'll see you next week.